This is an RNZ podcast. Dan Eaton is a former National Affairs Editor of the Press newspaper and a former foreign correspondent in Southeast Asia and the Middle East. And he's also the author of two spy novels, the latest of which features a New Zealand reporter caught up in conflict and espionage overseas. And Dan Eaton has just taken up a senior position in New Zealand's intelligence community. He's the new Director of National Security Policy at the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, where inside knowledge of how the media work might come in handy, you'd think. Jeremy Rose sat down with Dan Eaton recently to talk about the new thriller, modern journalism, and how intelligence and the defence establishment interacts with the media these days, and sometimes comes into conflict with them. But first, Jeremy asked Dan to read an extract from his latest book, No White Lies. In the distance, a man in a wooden dugout pulls in a fishing net. Beads of water glisten on the fine mesh in the dying light. A sudden flutter as a fish drops back into the brown water, the one that got away. The American breaks the silence. A writer has a lot of passports, you know, an excuse to be almost anywhere at any time. That can be very useful. I turn to face him again, eyebrows raised. Public affairs, you say? I thought I knew all the guys in public affairs. Look, I think we can help each other out here, he smiles and nods. Eyes and ears, that sort of thing. A conversation here and there about what you've seen or heard. I let the silence sit there for a while. And in return... A chance to serve, he grins. You're an American. Half, I correct him. My old man. Not the half I'm proud of. My mother was a Maori. A New Zealander. I'm not sure why I'm telling him this. Looking at my life, it would be hard to argue I've shown much pride in that side either. I'm about as dislocated as it's possible to be from the culture and identity of my ancestors. Maori. He repeats the word as if trying it out for the first time. Great warriors, Maori. The comment irritates me, but I say nothing. The expression on his face is hard to decipher. It could be admiration, or just mild interest, or surprise, as if to say I'd never have guessed. We can make you popular with your editors. Wherever you are in the world, a foreign correspondent with ties to the company has a much better chance than his competitors of getting the good stories. So, Dan, that was an extract from your latest book, No White Lies. With any novel, it's inevitable that readers will wonder if there's an autobiographical element. We know that the protagonist, Will McCormick, is a journalist, a former foreign correspondent, a Pulitzer Prize winner responsible at least for one death, and a journalist who helped legitimise a war. Any crossover at all? So, it's a good question. <laughs> um, no, so I'm, I, I guess, I mean, make it clear from the start, I'm a novelist that pulls uh, uh, things out of my imagination and puts them on the page. But, it, you know, it might help, I think, to, to put that little, uh, that little bit of the book in context. So it's, you know, my main character, Will McCormick, um, he's working as a journalist in Cambodia, Tick. I worked as a journalist in Cambodia. I was, I was bureau chief for Agence France Presse there. He's been struggling to cover a story because nobody at the US embassy will talk to him, Tick, being there. The rest is fiction. I, I did cover the particular event that, he, that, you know, that he's covering in the story. But the scene where we pick it up there is he's at a party at a villa on the banks of the Mekong River, and he's out there on the deck looking out over the river. Once again, Tick, being there, but he meets Bill Bradley. And... Uh, Bill Bradley is his future CIA handler, um, and Bill Bradley works uh, in, in uh, public affairs at the U.S. Embassy. That's, that's where we depart from reality. And in your experience, have you ever come across 
the CAA or any other foreign security branches who try and influence journalists like that, try to recruit journalists. So, you know, I guess I'd, I'd start again by saying that I'm speaking as a novelist here and, and somebody who reals, really pulls that fiction from my imagination, um, but I'm also an avid reader. Um, and so have journalists ever been co-opted as spies? Um, the short answer is absolutely yes. Uh, there's a long and storied history of it. Um, and back through the Cold War, World War II, World War One, and, and back beyond probably to the dawn of journalism and the dawn of, of uh, the industry of spying. Um, and books have been written about it, movies have been made, so I don't really need to, you know, um, go into those in too much detail. But the, the, the guy, Will, in my novel, um, you know, he's, he's symptomatic or he's a... He's a um, a character that ex- that you know exists in a lot of people, and over the years, I think journalism has been perfect cover, um, an excuse to be anywhere at any time, to collect information, to compile it, and send it back to headquarters is is perfect cover for spying. Um, but I think you know. It, but, but in your it, experience, you haven't actually met anyone you think I, was a spy. I've never been approached by an intelligence agency, to my, <laughs> to my knowledge. And to, and to be honest, they must have been pretty subtle <laughs> if they had. So this might have been me thinking like, you know, you know living out the dream of, of uh, such an important journalist that they wanted to, to, to target this guy. So no. But, I, you know, one of the, I guess, one of the interesting points, I think, about um, the way the world's changing really rapidly in journalism is journalists don't have to just think about, is that somebody making an approach at me, they have to think really carefully about the environment in which they operate now. So I was reading the other day a really interesting piece from the New York Times published last year called When Spies Hack Journalism, and it really talks about how the concept of the leaker has come in lots of different forms over the years. Um, You know, if you think about Chelsea Manning and WikiLeaks, or if you think about Edward Snowden and NSA, or you think about anonymous sources, you know, I don't even know who they are, but the Panama Papers, you've got this New York Times article that that really perceives a new and different take on on the style of large-scale leakers that's emerged. What they argue is that it's it's the security service of some nation states that are um, hacking troves of documents and leaking them to proxies who then release them to journalists. And so, you know, the best case of that is what happened with the US elections and the hacking of the Democrats by Russian intelligence back in, in 2016. I've thought a lot about what that would mean for journalism and the kind of journalism that I remember and the kind of journalism that you, Jeremy, would remember from, uh, you know, being brought up going to journalism school and learning, you know, um, essentially the rules of the rules of the road, the rules of the trade. And, and if you find something that's authentic and newsworthy, you run it, right? But by those conventions in this new media environment, I think journalists are set up to be manipulated or co-opted willingly or otherwise. And so, you know, the question is, like, were those hundreds or maybe thousands of journalists who reported on the leak of the Hillary Clinton emails, had they become de facto servants of, of a foreign intelligence uh, regime? I think that they, you look back and you read that coverage and they reported some really true and important things, but they weren't leaked equivalent things from, from the opponents of, of Clinton in that. And so, you know, the tilt of the coverage was decided in Moscow in that particular case. And, and that would often be the case. I mean, when yeah. something is leaked, one of the first questions should always be, why is it being leaked? Exactly. But the listeners know that you're both an author and yeah. a former journalist. 
but you're also going to be the Director of National Security yeah. Policy at the Department of yeah. Prime Minister and Cabinet. Yeah. So you're thinking about this with two hats on. One is a former journalist who absolutely believed in publishing things that were in the public interest. And as a journalist, you would have thought about the things which were of interest but possibly not in the public interest. You're kind of on the other side of that fence now. Mm. What would you do if you came across things which you thought were in the public interest but weren't in the interests of the Prime Minister's department or, or the Prime Minister and Cabinet? How how are you going to navigate that? So, look, I, I, I don't want to go into hypotheticals, but I don't want to use that as an excuse not to tell the story. But, I, you know, in my experience so far, and I haven't gone to work uh, in this new role yet, but I haven't found myself in that situation. I've been a public servant for 10 years, and to be honest, I don't expect to. But we all know the concept of the whistleblower, don't we? A whistleblower is somebody who reports dishonest or illegal behaviour from within an organisation... And, you know, there are mechanisms to do this. So in New Zealand, we have the Protected Disclosures Act. But obviously, there'll be times when you can't report internally, uh, you know. So we've also got the Ombudsman. um, Or in cases of classified information, we've got the Inspector General of, of Security and Intelligence. And whistleblowers can be given certain legal protections under our system, certain situations where you can keep their identity confidential. So as a public servant, I know there are avenues uh, that I can go down. But I'd I'd like to sort of make a a point about conspiracies, which takes us back to my efforts to write novels, I guess, is that conspiracies really appeal to the human brain. And uh, conspiracies have, they have an enormous draw. And that's why they're they're the basis for so many good novels. And that's why, as a novelist, I love them. Uh, But my experience, and having been uh, in the media, for most of my career and in the public service for a good part of it is that, you know, working in that security and intelligence sector, the people that I've worked with and the people I've come across are a lot like you and me. They're just like you and me. They're regular Kiwis, regular values. They go to work and they do the right thing day in and day out. And so I wish I could get this advice back to me in my journalism days. But, you know, if you're a journalist and you're trying to connect the dots between a couple of juicy, you know, pieces of disparate, you know, sort of information that you've gotten hold of, err on the side of bureaucratic stuff-up or um, human error over grand conspiracy. Um, You know, as a novelist, we can let our imaginations run wild. In fact, if we don't, nobody's going to buy our books. Uh, But as journalists, I think we shouldn't. That's sort of, uh, you know, my my view. But we have seen Mm. that the government and the defence establishment in New Zealand is quite often very keen to keep stories untold. You know, we've had the work of Nikki Haga mm. recently of the Stuff Investigation Team mm. looking into what happened in Afghanistan. Mm. I mean, I'm just interested in someone who's been on both sides mm. of the fence. Mm. How difficult is it to to navigate that? And how can we encourage a culture within mm. government that is as responsible as the one which you're encouraging among journalists? Well, I think, I mean, look, I, I wouldn't want to comment on the Operation Burnham thing, and I, and I you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of places I wouldn't want to go, and there's inquiries, and I'm an amateur stepping in the middle of it, wouldn't, you know, wouldn't be wise. But, you know, in our earlier conversation, you had you'd sort of mentioned some of those blurred lines. So Media Watch, uh, you'd mentioned, I actually haven't read this story, but had, had reported on, uh, you know, a bunch of New Zealand journalists being invited um, to visit the American military in Hawaii and 
not writing about it. And I'm not, I'm not familiar with that particular story specifically. But, you know, there's always that danger, I think, of blurred lines between journalists and what they cover. And particularly, you know, to be honest with you, in an age where news organisations are encouraging reporters to become personalities and in some cases even promoting them as celebrities. So, you know, I drive to work every day and uh, I see them on the sides of buses and I see them on billboards. There are lots of examples where that, that line is blurred. And if you think about, you know, checkbook journalism, uh, um, you know, media organisations paying for access, uh, whether it's a sports star story or whether it's something, you know, uh, you know, more uh, interesting, I guess, like a disgraced politician story or or whether you've got situations like journalists being embedded in a, a war or even, you know, ones that I came across more commonly was uh, being paid by an interested party. So, you know, uh, uh, you know, covering a story and your flights are covered and your accommodation's covered and that kind of thing. In, um, in, in the afterword to your novel, you, yeah. you talk about the... Yurawera police yeah. raids and mention that the Suppression of Terrorism Act is still on the books yeah. and could be misused. And you also mention that journalists have been guilty of amplifying yeah. Yeah. these things. What, what were your specific concerns there? I think it's a tough one because I really do believe that you don't always realise you might have been doing that or uh, amplifying misinformation until um, sometime after the fact. In No White Lies, I was referencing some of the reporting that occurred in the run-up to the Iraq war in 2003, uh, the invasion of Iraq in 2003. But there's another example that I think gives pause for reflection, and that's some of the reporting around the 2007 police raids around New Zealand that became known as Operation 8. And I reported on those for the Christchurch Press as National Affairs Editor. And within hours of that story breaking, uh, we journos were reporting tra- terrorist training camps in the Uruweras. We were using headlines like guerrillas in the mist. Later on, police recordings of the alleged terrorists were leaked to the media and widely reported, and despite being ruled admiss- inadmissible in court, uh, and you know, police eventually uh, attempted to charge those arrested under the previously untested Terrorism Suppression Act, um, Solicitor General ultimately said, um, ruled that they couldn't couldn't do that. Fast forward a few years, uh, police have since apologised, but I think assisted by us in the media, potentially unwittingly in the way that we go about um, things, you could argue that damage was already done. So th- those are um, some of the things that cross my mind, and I, I still struggle with them. I'm not sure, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert. I haven't dug deeply into who leaked what or who did th- this or that but they lead to a certain level of discomfort as a journalist um, that what you report has a real impact on real people. With your novels, you know, people will read them as fiction, as extraordinary, unbelievable events in many ways. But do you think people are going to go through them now that they know that you have this position within the New Zealand security establishment and try and discern what your attitudes are to Māori activists, to Islamic, so-called Islamic terrorism? It's not something that I haven't thought about, but as a, as a New Zealand citizen um, and as a creative person and uh, a former journalist, I, f- I figure that we live in a country where we have the right to express ourselves artistically um, and uh, I get a huge amount of pleasure out of writing stories and creating stories. And to be honest, there's, there's not a, a sensible string that you can find 
through somebody's life where uh, you're a journalist, uh, you go into uh, intelligence assessment work, and then you go into policy work. And there is a, there's a narrative and a thread through that, which is storytelling. And it's making sense of information. Look, people may or may not do that. I, in fact, I, I find it hard to believe that anyone would find me important it, enough or interesting enough to do that. It didn't come uh, up in the job interview? No, it didn't, but I've, uh, I've declared it um, uh, in a range of settings so that I have no conflict of interest. And uh, uh, everybody, everybody I know and work for knows uh, that, part of, um, that part of my, you know, that part of me which is done in my personal time. I, I go home and when other people might um, watch TV, uh, you know, I uh, play with the kids, put them to bed chat with my wife and then when she goes off and does Pilates or whatever I go up to my room and um, and uh, write novels and how many have you done so far so this is my uh, this is my second um, they they take a lot of work so the first one came out in 2015 uh, both of them by the way are independently published which is a, a sneaky name for self-published so the first one was called the secret gospel and it was a religious conspiracy thriller so completely different but I do come from a religious background I've got a father who's a retired bishop in the Church of England and was brought up that way so I sort of you know you can and see And you grew up in the Middle East I think Grew up in the Middle East parent uh, my parents were missionaries uh, so and that first book um, sold like wildfire it sold tens of thousands of copies furnished my house did all those things I thought I've got to do another one so here I am uh, you know uh, writing another book the first one got picked up by another publisher eventually for an audio book um, this one's only a couple of months old, so you know, the jury's out. And the first one had a, a journalist as a key character as well, I think. It did. Um, so you, um, in in that sense, you kind of write what you know. Uh, but there's, it's interesting, there's a lot of people out there who think journalism is an exciting and sexy profession. Uh, you get into it and you realise <laughs> that it's humdrum and boring like any other. Uh, there'll be a lot of people out there that think national security is an exciting profession, and I can assure you it is. Uh, but it's, it's populated by people like you and me who um, have regular skills, regular backgrounds, um, you know, went to university in New Zealand. Ordinary people sort of making their way in the world. And once again, I'm going to ask you to put your historic journalist hat on yeah. and just you have no concerns about the current state of our legislation as far as protecting the craft of journalism, whistleblowers, the ability to protect sources, and finally <laughs> our defence establishment not trying to influence journalism beyond what's reasonable. No, I mean, and to be honest, I say that I haven't done a complete dissection of it. I haven't studied it in detail. But no, I don't, um, I don't feel concerned. And one of the interesting things that I think is, is worth noting is that one of the reasons why, as public servants, we engage journalists, and, and so I can't, really, I can't really talk specifically about the, the um, story that you'd covered earlier about journalists going off to Hawaii, um, but there's a really important issue around informed journalism. And so for me, you know, governor agencies, when we host journalists, it's in my experience at least, and I've done this, uh, is that the motive is to ensure informed journalism. And, and I'll just unpick that a bit because I know it can create scepticism. But um, so in my previous role as director of defence policy, uh, we routine, routinely, you know, gave background briefings to journalists and academics um, prior to the release of major pieces of public policy. Um, and 
you know, when, when we did that, I guess in my mind is that, you know, how can we complain when the media misinterpret or misrepresent us or the intent of policy or what we do more generally in the public service if, we, if we've made no effort to explain our intent in developing that policy or in what we do? And having been on both sides of the fence, I've noticed and I believe there's a trust deficit between journalists and the government. And there's a, a high churn in both professions uh, and a lot of inexperience. And I, I think, anyway, one way to move beyond that is to build relationships with journalists and then to do that over time so that we have longer conversations that aren't um, about tweets or sound bites. And to my mind, anyway, it's more about informing than influencing. Uh, and I say that genuinely and um, have talked to many journalists and academics too because, you know, you think who, who do journalists go then to have... Uh, other conversations where they go to the experts and if those experts don't at least before they dissect what we do understand what we intended whether we got that across or not then you know the fault's on us for not and, trying and to those invites it. have gone out widely to the likes of john stevenson nikki hager the staff team so the, they've gone what we you know they've gone out to um so we work closely with uh, you know, ministers' offices and things, but they've gone. Out, they go out widely to different news organisations, not always targeted at specific at specific people. Um, but I believe that um, you know that there will be a. Um, I'm not. I'm happy to talk to those people, and I think you'll find um, others in the in the public service establishment are as well. If you can have those long conversations where you listen to each other, that that would be my my view. In no white lies. There's a don't want to give too much away, but there is a suggestion of returned jihadists of Maori descent, and it's a very tangled web that you weave. Mm. Tell me a bit about the thinking behind that. Well, I mean, it's it's an atmospheric psychological thriller, um, and I would describe it as sort of a cross between Jane Campion's Top of the Lake, I don't know if you've seen it, the BBC drama series, and a John le Carre spy novel, just unashamedly, um, you know, uh, but with a New Zealand twist. So most of it's set here, and there has to be a, uh, you know, I came up with, I struggled to find a plausible way in which peaceful old New Zealand, that there's a plausible threat. So that's where I wove in elements of Operation 8 and, and the like because that became a massive national news story, uh, which, you know, over time is still uh, is still un- unfolding. So it is what it is, but it's it's pure fiction. And there's, a, there's kind of a rule as you're writing a novel, I've found as a novelist, is that as you get to the end of each chapter, you have to hook somebody into the next chapter. And also a story has an arc with a middle and an end. Uh, and so you often have to build in the most outrageous things to keep people reading. Um, so I wouldn't read it and look for truth. Yeah, I suppose I ask it because if there's a criticism of our intelligence services, mm. it's that they had a massive failure of imagination where they seem to concentrate on the mosques as a threat rather than something that could be threatened. And... It feels as if a lot of effort has gone into seeing Māori as a potential threat, which is what Operation 8 did. And I just wondered whether you might be worried that people would read this book and think that you, in fact, had similar 
blind spots or... No, I don't think that's where I, I was coming from, and I really wouldn't want to walk into... The, we have a royal commission going on and, and, and things like that, so I really wouldn't want to um, even go there. Like, I, I, I guess what I want people to realise that this is... Uh, this was written as a piece of pure fiction, pulp fiction, which um, ultimately I'm trying to sell books and I'm hoping that people will pick it up and read it on a flight or, or, or at the beach and they may, they may you know, chuck it away tomorrow. But it, it's written as pure fiction and there's no... Um, it, you know, it's not in my, it wasn't in my mind that I was uncovering some deep truth. So to some extent, you know, I feel kind of... It's, it's, almost a bit of a surprise to find myself on Radio News on Media Watch, which is a serious program, uh, talking about um, my pet imaginative project. But, you know, you draw on what you know, and so I draw on those conflicts that I felt as a journalist trying to cover things and trying to be fair. To some extent, I'm influenced by my current profession and being able to see behind the veil and see that um, it's not the world that a lot of people are trying to paint painted out to be its ordinary people going around going about ordinary jobs. That was Dan Eaton who recently took up the job of Director of National Security Policy at the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet talking there to Media Watch's Jeremy Rose. As we heard there Dan is a former National Affairs Editor at the Press, a former foreign correspondent and the author of two spy novels including the new one we heard about there with a Kiwi journalist at the heart of the story No White Lies.